Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 308 with Alan Gannett. Alan is talking about what makes ideas connect, resonate, be smashingly successful. So you'll learn one, the two fundamental human desires that come together in winning innovations. Two, little things to tweak to make your offering a smashing success. And three, the four laws of the creative curve. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep308. Speaking of how to be awesome at your job, we've got a little bit of housekeeping tidying up that needs to unfold here right now. And so here's the situation. It's wild that we're over 300 episodes now, but we are. Hooray. Thank you for listening this whole journey. It's so cool. And I love to hear from folks who say, hey, Pete, I'm listening to the new stuff and it's great, but I came on board just a few months ago. So now I'm going through the whole back catalog. And the back catalog is where some housekeeping needs to occur. You see, most podcast applications, including the one that comes in the iPhone, just that little purple guy that just says podcasts built in there, they are capped at 300 episodes in the feed, as is the case as well with Overcast, a number of others. I believe Spotify will only show you the last 100. So if you were curious about episodes before 200-ish, you can go on back using another app. And I really like Overcast myself. I think that's pretty handy in terms of its features. But the one built into the iPhone is great too. But regardless, whatever you're using, most likely you're going to hit a cap of about 300 episodes. So if you scroll back to the very, very beginning, it'll start now at episode you know, 10 or 12 or something instead of the very, very beginning. And a lot of people like to start at the very beginning because the beginning is a great place to start. So what do you do? I've talked to other podcasters about this. It's an awesomely fun problem to have. It's like, I have too many great episodes. What do I do here? And so what I've opted to do is a little bit of trimming. And if you were looking very closely at the feed, you'll see that some of the episodes have disappeared. Now, they have not disappeared forever. You can absolutely find them over at awesomeatyourjob.com if you navigate to that webpage. But they've disappeared from the feed that is on your device. So this is maybe a convoluted long story, but what I'm really looking to do is select the very finest episodes to remain in the feed. So that way, if you're saying, hey, let's just go into a back catalog episode, you will get some fantastic episodes. So if some episodes need to go, I would like for those episodes to be the ones that are less resonant, less popular, less engaging for the majority of folks. So I've been starting to do a little bit of that by looking at some of the download numbers, but that really doesn't tell the whole story. I really want to get your take on which episodes were the absolute best and which ones were the worst or disappointing in some way. So I can take that information in conjunction with the other data associated with downloads and engagement and email opens and clicks and all that to come up with really which ones should be trimmed because there may be more niche or isolated, not applicable to everybody and which ones should really be highlighted and promoted and shared. Hey, greatest hits, take a look at these. They're awesome. They're great. You'll have a really cool experience if you're sharing it with a friend and saying, come check out some of the finest episodes that we've been able to identify using this extra information. So in short, what I would love for you to do is let me know which ones are the very best, which ones were not so much engaging and delightful to you by taking a quick survey. It'll take about four minutes. And that's found at awesomeatyourjob.com slash best, B-E-S-T. 
awesomeatyourjob.com slash best. What really needs to stay or go in the feed so that the back catalog episodes are really the finest, finest back catalog episodes. I'm going to leave the last 100-ish always there for you. So Spotify users will not see any weird gaffes as well as you can share with someone in a month or two after the episode comes out. It's like, hey, take a look at this. Or I guess technically maybe eight months mathematically would be the figure. So that's the scoop. Go to awesomeatyourjob.com slash best. Let me know what you're digging the most versus the least so that we can have the episodes showing up oh so conveniently in the feed be the ones that are outstandingly, fantastically wonderful for you. And again, every episode will still be there at awesomeatyourjob.com. It just might take a little bit more effort to hunt it down and navigate to it and play it. But I guess that's just the constraint that we're working with here. So anyway, enough of that story. Here's Alan's story. Alan Gannett is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven, a marketing analytics platform whose clients have included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth Avenue, Home Depot, Aetna, Honda, and GE. He has been on the 30 under 30 list for both Inc. and Forbes, and he is a contributor for FastCompany.com and author of The Creative Curve on how anyone can achieve moments of creative genius from Currency, a division of Pigman Random House. He was also once a very pitiful runner up on Wheel of Fortune. Big thanks to Alan for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now, here's Alan. Alan, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome About Your Job podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having the best name podcast on the internet. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, I was kind of inspired by uh, Ramit Sethi of I Will Teach You To Be Rich because it's like, I know exactly what I'm getting from you. (laughs) And I like that clarity. It's like that movie, Snakes on a Plane. It was about snakes (laughs) on a plane. Yes. Oh, and it was a delight. Hey, speaking, well, you're a marketing (laughs) guy. I loved what they did with Samuel Jackson's voice calling people and leaving voicemails like, hey, Alan, you got to get your butt to see snakes on a plane. <laughs> I just thought that was the coolest thing. <laughs> I don't remember that. That sounds, I need to go look it up. That's amazing. I hope it's still alive. It brought me such joy and probably uh, probably a healthy return on investment that you could measure with Track Maven. Oh, oh this is true. <laughs> this is true. That's cool. Well, let's get into it a little bit. But first, I think we got to hear about your Wheel of Fortune experience. Oh my God. Um, yeah, this is, this is, I think this is one of those fun facts on the bio. Um, so yes, when I was, when I was 18, I decided I had this phase where I was like, I want to get cast on game shows. Like how hard could it be? And so I, um, I basically applied to all these different game shows and, um, I got, there was a local audition for Wheel of Fortune. So I went and I never really watched Wheel of Fortune before. And so I decided that instead of studying the puzzles, I would instead um, study the contestants. And so I watched like hours and hours and I played like um, the web game and like I did all these different stuff to get a feel for it. And what I realized about all the contestants that were on the show was that um, they weren't all that good at puzzles. What they were good at is they were all bubbly and they all like enunciated really well and so yeah, yeah, I went in and I I did terrible on the the audition the actual like written test part. But um, when it came to the the audition, I did a Elmo impression, um, which I will never ever do again. And I think oh. they were like, okay, this guy's sufficiently crazy. And so yeah, I went on and I um, I lost terribly. I lost uh, to Joan from Alexandria, Virginia, who won sixty thousand dollars. I did not. Oh. Win that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wonder where Joan is now and what she's done with the money. Ah, <laughs> uh, Joan, if you're listening, like, please send me a DM. 
Oh, that's fun. That's good. All right, cool. Well, I want to get into your book here, but first to get a little bit of a backstory. So you are the founder and CEO of Track Maven, which is marketing analytics software. So can you give us a little bit of a feel for how your experience in that world informed your view of creativity and, and made you think that you need to write this book? Yeah. So I've been running Track Maven for almost six years now. And the thing which is really interesting is so we work with a lot of really big brands to help them find the patterns in their marketing data. So like, what are the things that you're doing? What are the stories you're telling, the products you're focusing on, the messages, the audiences? What are those things that are actually driving results for your business? And so what we found is that there's actually a lot of science behind this sort of marketing creativity. And so I've always had this sort of like, right brain, left brain sort of overlap view of creativity. And a few years ago, I started noticing that when I would talk to, you know, the marketers we work with, they would say something like, well, you know, I'm just not that creative. And I was like, uh, what? And like, I'm just, I'm not that way. Um, you know, I'm not, I wasn't born like Mozart. I'm not Steve Jobs. And I was like, um, but creativity is like this like skill that you can develop and learn. And they're like, no, no, no. It's, you know, you either have it or you don't. And so I, I had always read a lot of autobiographies and I was read a lot of stories of creative genius. And when you read the autobiographies and the memoirs and the stories from these people, what's clear is that they don't feel like they were just born with it. They also don't feel like it was just the result of hard work. They feel like it was the result of a lot of smart work and a lot of intentionality. And so I started giving this talk and marketing conferences all about how like we need to get rid of this notion of the creative genius just sort of like walking out of the womb like with all these talents and that being a reason why you can't also be creative. And that spiraled into a book proposal, which spiraled into broadening the book to all creatives because the thing I realized as I started digging into the topic was that creativity is one of these things that like is actually one of the most misunderstood concepts in popular culture. We all think we know what it is. But there's actually been tons of really fascinating science and research about creativity that people don't know about. Like it's actually at this point pretty well studied and we have a really good understanding of what causes people to like certain things, dislike other things, um, what like, what gets um, – you know, what are the underlying things in your brain that actually drive creative thinking? Like we have a lot of good science on this. And so the book was this attempt to both A – debunk this sort of like inspiration theory of creativity and two to paint a picture of okay if creativity is something you can nurture and develop well how do you do it and so for that half of the book i interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses these are like billionaires like david rubenstein you know startup people like alexis ohanian from reddit kevin ryan who did mongodb guilt business insider double click um, you know, I did Oscar winners. Uh, I did YouTube vloggers like Casey Neistat. Um, I did you know Tony Award winners, Emmy Award winners, all these different people. And I found that there was these consistent things they did to enhance their creativity over and over again. And so in the book, I explain what those things are and I explain how you can do them too. Okay, yes. Well, I want to dig into these practices, absolutely. But first, I'm just so intrigued. Can you unpack a little bit some of the key things that are universal, like that what makes us like stuff and dislike stuff? Yeah, so what I found was really interesting when you dive into the research is that people have studied this question in a few different fields. So they've studied in psychology and sociology and neuroscience. And they've all sort of converged on this thing, where it turns out a big part of our preference is tied around these two urges we have. The first urge is that as people, we crave the familiar. 
we like things that are we're comfortable with, that we know are safe. And this is very much a sort of evolutionary or reptilian effect where, you know, part of the, our job of our brain is to keep us safe. So if we see, you know, um, you know, if we were, you know, thousands of years ago, we saw a cave that we'd never seen before, we sort of know, mm, should probably avoid that thing. And so we have this ability to really seek out the familiar, like what is, you know, think about your home, think about visiting your grandmother's home, these places where you feel sort of safe. So that's one thing. The second type of, um, thing that affects preference, the second urge is that we also are really interested in things that are novel because we like the potential reward. So for example, in the hunter gatherer days, you know, you're looking for new berries, you're looking for new sources of food, you're constantly looking for that next thing. But the problem is, is that these two urges, the craving for familiarity because of safety and the seeking of novelty because of potential reward are in direct contradiction with each other. Like it almost makes no sense. And the thing is that what scientists found is that this is actually a really elegant way for our brain to balance things. Because let's say, for example, you see a new berry in a field and it looks wildly different than any berry you've ever seen before. You should probably not eat it because it's probably poisonous. If, on the other hand, you see a berry that's basically, you know, a bigger blueberry, it's just a big fat blueberry, you can probably go, okay, it's probably fine. I'm going to try it out. Right. And so your brain has this really graceful way of balancing familiarity and novelty. And what scientists found, what this relationship looks like is that the more we see something, the more we like it, but only up until a point. Once that point is reached, then every time we see it, we like it less and less and less. And so what they found is there's this inverse U relationship. There's this bell curve. There's this bell curve between um, exposure and preference. And so in the book, I call it the creative curve. And it's this relationship where your job as a marketer, as an entrepreneur, as someone who's tasked with creating anything is to create ideas that have that right blend of familiarity and novelty, right? Star Wars was literally a Western in space. It was familiar, but it was also novel. Um, Harry Potter was a traditional rag to riches, you know, orphan rises to greatness story, but it was told in this whole world around witches and wizards and magic in a way which many children's book had never done before. And so that combination of familiarity and novelty, that was the thing that really stuck out as one of these findings that has been so well researched, so well founded, so well supported, but we don't really talk about that when we talk about creativity. Mm-hmm. Intriguing. An inverse U, I guess I'm thinking of a lowercase N, if you will. <laughs> and then how that unfolds. And I don't know who it was, a, a comedian or just one of my buddies who said, ooh, that looks like something that I already know and love and yet slightly different. I will try this yes. new flavor of beef jerky. Yes. Totally. I already like this brand of beef jerky. And yet this is mesquite. So I am intrigued. So <laughs> that connects and relates certainly to my own experience. And I'm thinking about sort of like, I guess, startups that really are hits like Uber. It's like, you're familiar with a cab. Okay. Well, hey. How about we just do that a little differently in a way that you find to be more convenient? I think food trends are a great example of this. Um, you know, you saw, for example, when Pinkberry rose to prominence, it was ice cream, but it wasn't. It was a little tangy. It was a little different. It was kind of healthy, I guess. Um, and now it obviously has fallen from prominence. Um, you know, right now there's that big trend going around of the sort of the sushi burritos, like these giant oversized sushi rolls. And it's something familiar. It's sushi. and It's also something familiar. It's a burrito, but it's different. It's a sushi burrito. And so that's one of those things that it was interesting because there's all this science about it. But in the book, I have a bunch of, you know, I have some quotes from some of the interviews. And a lot of these creatives, 
they, they, they know this. They acknowledge this. And in fact, I talk about this really fascinating study that this one professor did of um, – he's a professor of empir- empirical musicology, which is a study of the math behind music. And he did this study looking at how the Beatles use experimental song features over their career. And it follows this U-shape where they use them more and more. And then as their audience started getting fatigued, they started using them less and less. And so you know, they always balanced the right balance of familiarity and novelty. They weren't doing stuff that was too new. They weren't doing stuff that was too old. I'm also thinking about music there in terms of like if there's a hit song on the radio or just always just popping up again and again wherever you go. You know, at first it's like, what is this? I don't know. Uh. And then it kind of grows on you like, yeah, I dig this. And it's like, I'm so sick of this. It's everywhere. I just it just got to go. Oh, exactly. There's actually a study in the book um, that literally did that in a scientific setting where they just play the same song over and over again. And again, there's this U-shaped relationship. Like the first time you hear a new Drake song, you're like, oh, okay. And the third time you're like, oh, this is great. And the like 10th time you're like, please stop playing Hotline Bling. And then the 20th time you're like, why is this playing? Um, and so you see this over and over again is that there's this relationship, like things fall in and out of favor. And if you're going to master creativity, you have to first master that. You first have to master this curve. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'm wondering then. So let's say you're a professional, you are in an environment working with your folks, your colleagues day in, day out. You need to come up with the big idea that's going to, I don't know, improve a process or be a new opportunity that we should chase after. So how does one apply this principle in the trenches? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that you can apply from a really sort of a a micro perspective is I think too often in business environments, we focus on the novel, right? We focus on being, we use words like innovation, brainstorm, we're concentrating on these new out-of-the-box ideas. And I think some of the most valuable innovation, especially in corporate America, actually comes from taking what's already working and just updating it, just doing those little tweaks, those little changes. Like I think we have to get away from this idea that sort of originality and innovation are the key to success because that's not actually what the science shows us. That's not actually what history shows us. The things that are successful are actually oftentimes the things that are somewhat familiar. And I think making that mind shift change is really important. So I hate the word brainstorming. It's like my least favorite word. Is ideation also a no-no for you? Uh, uh, you're killing <laughs> me. Don't say this. Stop. Well, I guess I'm thinking if, in terms of products, we always think of Apple, oh, you know, design and innovation and all those words. And at the same time, though, you know, the iPhone is kind of like, well, hey, it's a phone and a music player and some internet goodies sort of in one. So it's like you got a thing in your pocket. Maybe you have multiple things in your pocket. but just sort of put them all into one convenient package that looks great. 100%. You see this a lot. You know, basically what you're talking about is you know, form factors. So form factors are really common form of innovation because it's the same actual functionality but in a different form factor. So you know, now we sort of joke about um, you know, Tide Pods because of the, the, the viral meme about people eating them. But you know, before that, they were a really successful product line because it was just taking detergent and making it like, easier to deal with. And like you know, it's crazy because it's literally just that, you know, people, I guess, didn't want to pour the detergent, but Tide Pods were hugely successful just by changing the form factor. But like that's all the change they made was that it wasn't like some huge, crazy innovation. It was just let's put in a little plastic dissolvable bag. That's true. And that's intriguing how you can also think about it in terms of a Tide pen, a Tide wipe. Oh, yeah. All these things. A Clorox wipe. It's literally the same thing. Travel size. Oh, a jumbo size. 
But so that's intriguing. I'm almost sort of imagining sort of like a matrix or a spider diagram in terms of, hey, you know, form factor is one thing you can tweak a little bit on one axis or dimension. What are some others in terms of, hey, form factor is one variable, size is another. What else? Yeah, it really depends on um, the creative field, obviously, right? With consumer um, consumer packaged goods, you know, form factors, obviously one that's pretty common. Brands, another one that's pretty common. Um, oftentimes, you'll you see this in, for example, when people are writing novels, they oftentimes will use really traditional story arcs. Like there's actually all this interesting research about story arcs. There's these like six recurring story arcs that people always use. And so you know, people will take that same story arc and then they'll add their own characters or genre. You know, sometimes people will innovate on the actual story arc and add like a weird um, twist or like a sort of surprise ending. But actually more traditionally, the successful types of art are taking the standard structures and formulas and they're working off of that. So much more common is you see people using the standard sort of structure or formula in art and working off that. Like, you know, um, most radio successful radio songs are three minutes. There are the occasional, you know, songs, I guess, like Bohemian Rhapsody that's like, you know, forever and that are successful from a sort of popular perspective. But those are the exception, not the norm. And so typically you actually have to really focus on what are going to be the things you do that are similar to the baseline, not, you know, wildly different. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now one of the key pieces in your book is coming up with the right idea at the right time. So we talked about this curve. And so any thoughts in terms of the timing? Do you play the game a little bit different if it's played out and super familiar versus, oh, you know, seems more novel? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing you need to, to recognize is you need to learn how to listen to your audience to identify where your idea is and whether or not you can change it or pivot it to the right place. Because you need to be at that blend of familiar novel, that right perfect blend to really take off. So um, you know, in the book, I talk about these four things these you know highly successful creative people do. And one of them that I was surprised by is that they all engage in a highly data-driven iterative process. I don't mean data necessarily purely in the data way, although some do, but I mean some sort of systematic rigorous process of creating, testing, editing, re-editing, recreating, sort of doing that over and over and over again. And so, um, you know, for example, I talk about how the I spent a day with the Ben and Jerry's um, flavor development team, which was like a really fun, delicious day for lots of reasons. Um, and one of the things I thought was so interesting was you have these people who are like experts in, you know, ice cream, they're experts in flavor, they're former chefs, they're food scientists, but the biggest thing, the most important thing for them that they do is every year they come up with a list of 200 flavor ideas and they survey their audience. They literally send – they have an email newsletter. They send a survey to a subset of the people in the email newsletter and they just ask two questions. And the two questions are, one, um, how likely are you to buy this flavor? And two, how unique is this flavor? So they're basically asking how familiar is it and how novel is it? And the reason why that's so important is because what they want to do is they create too many things that are too familiar, that are, you know, people will say, oh, I love that, that are similar to things they already like. Well, you'll end up with a whole line of like brownie and cookie flavors, which sounds good, but will eventually make the brand feel stale. If you just focus on novelty, you'll just get a bunch of flavors that are like crazy, but no one actually will buy them when they see them on the shelf, even if they taste good. And so they, they use they use data to winnow down those initial gut ideas into ideas that they feel have a high degree of success, 
based on listening to their audience. So much of creativity, so much about doing anything creative is about nailing that for your audience. I think it's amazing how little we actually listen to our audience. So that was one of the things I thought was most surprising was, you know, we have this vision of these great creatives, like going off into a cabin in the woods and creating these things. And then you're returning with a finished product. And in reality, the creators I interviewed, like they love getting audience feedback because they're creating for the audience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm intrigued. So those two questions then, is it like a 400 item survey then if there's 200 flavors and, uh, oh dang. Yeah, no, it's, it's like a whole production. (laughs) These are the committed ice cream. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think they split it up, but like, yeah, people, people, people get into Ben and Jerry's. They have a big email list. You'd be shocked. Well, that's very intriguing. And I remember one of the first times I had this aha was, I don't know how it happened. I was with my buddy, Connor. Shout out. And we were watching the Simpsons movie DVD commentary. I don't know. It just happened that day. And so what occurred again and again in the commentary was the creators were talking about, oh, hey, you know, before in this scene, we did this joke, but that didn't work. You know, originally we did this, but that didn't work. You know, we tried it out with this and that. And I was like, wait a second. And so from my perspective as a consumer, like, okay, this is just a silly, you know, cartoon movie. But from behind the curtain with the creative folk going after it, it's like a test and test and test. And it's like, yeah. Comedy is so fast. I mean, stand-up comedy, I profile stand-up comedy in the book. Stand-up comedy, I think, is one of the most interesting examples of this because they literally get on stage and their whole shtick is they're supposed to look like they're sort of like organic and jokey. Yes. But like literally, if you ever watch like the new um, Seinfeld special on Netflix, they have this scene where he's sitting in the middle of a park and they took out all of his yellow legal pads of jokes that he's written throughout his entire career. And it fills the entire park because the whole thing in stand-up comedy is what they actually do is they're constantly like writing down little ideas. And then all these stand-up comedians, even the big ones, are constantly going to like small comedy shows to like – they call it like working out a joke because they want to get like the every little like pause and facial expression. They want to get that all nailed. So by the time it's going their comedy special a year from now, they've been like – practicing and testing and getting that joke just right for them to deliver it on air record. And then they mostly just throw out the jokes they've done for their special and they do the whole thing over again. And so stand-up comedy is actually one of the most practiced, rehearsed, written types of creativity. But we think of it as this like organic thing. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. These people don't just come up and start cracking jokes. Yeah, certainly. And I remember I always wondered when I was watching stand-up comedy, it's like, that joke is not at all connected to the previous joke. It feels like <laughs> if this were a conversation, there'd be a segue or whatever. It is like, well, hey, what can I tell you? I got a bunch of jokes that are winning and they didn't happen to be connected to each other. So this is what you got. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> well, so that's one great process there in terms of the laws of creative success. And you share a couple others. Can you reveal them for us? Yeah, of course. So um, in the book, there's these four laws of the creative curve. Um, the one I already mentioned, obviously, is iterations and these highly iterative processes. So all these creators do that. The other three, the first one is consumption. So one of the things I thought was so interesting is that we think of creators as constantly doing, as constantly putting stuff out there. But all the creators are interviewed actually spend a lot of time consuming information in their vertical. And I explained in the book why. I explained why they do that. But that was one of the things I thought was so fascinating. It's a huge amount of time consuming information in their vertical. The second thing is that, you know, again, we talk about this sort of like originality myth. But every single one I interviewed talked about at some level how they spend time imitating the greats, 
imitation is a huge part of the creative process. So the second law is imitation. And the reason why is that there's these common structures, these common ways in which creative products are presented to an audience. And so when you have to balance familiarity and novelty, knowing those structures is very, very important to create the familiar. The third one, the one that I think is probably the most important and the one that's you know, often underappreciated and under, um, you know, misunderstood is creative communities. So we have this sort of myth of like the solo genius, like the idea that there's these like, you know, creatives like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and they're doing these things all by themselves. And like, and like, this is so far from the truth and it's so destructive because so much of creativity is a social phenomenon. You have to create work that other people recognize as creative. They have to tell people about it. People have to agree that it's creative. And so like when you actually look at these stories, like look, Steve Jobs, it's Steve Wozniak. He had investors. He had employees who worked for him. Like there's all these people involved. And so in the book, I break down the different types of people you need to have in your creative community. Um, but like one of the ones that people always sort of forget about is like all the creative geniuses I interviewed, how would I call a prominent promoter? Someone who gives them and lends them credibility. Because if you are a creative and no one ever hears about your work, sure, your work may be technically proficient, but from an academic perspective, it's actually not creative. Creative work, by definition, has to be recognized as creatives. People have to see it in order for it to be labeled as such. And so having people who lend you credibility, who lend you airtime, who do that is actually incredibly important. So um, the sort of social construct around creativity is one of the things that I thought was really interesting when you dive into creativity. Because if I asked you, hey, Pete, like, is that painting creative? It's actually a hard question to answer. Because like, if you're looking at, you know, a painting of Mona Lisa, well, if you're looking at a new one today, that's an exact reproduction, well, you'd say, well, it's not creative. Okay, but like, what makes the original one creative? There's other paintings from a similar time period that are just as well painted and just as interesting. And so like there's actually a really big social phenomenon aspect around creativity that really is actually like an important sort of nuance to understand. Well, I like that turn of phrase, prominent promoter. And, and I'm just imagining sort of like a hype man, like, yeah, dog, <laughs> what he said. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> what are a couple other key roles? Yeah. So a couple other ones are the other one's a master teacher. And so all the creatives I interviewed had someone who is a world-class expert as a teacher, not just sort of middling level. Um, and the prominent promoter and the master teacher, sometimes people find them in one as like a mentor, but I think it's important to break those two because those are actually two separate roles. And for a lot of people, those came from two separate people. Um, the other one is what I call a conflicting collaborator. So, you know, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs are a great example of this, where uh, Steve Jobs didn't want to design these computers and Steve Wozniak did not want to go around selling them. And so oftentimes we talk about these people as like, okay, they're the face of it. They're the name, they're the genius. But like, they also have all done a good job of acknowledging their weaknesses and bring other people in who conflict with them, who have those different talents to actually get to where they want to go. And that, that is so, so, so important because if you buy this myth that's all about you, it's just about this one person and you have to do it by yourself, you're never going to get there. You're never going to get there. And frankly, you probably shouldn't because you're going to need to learn how to engage with other people to really, once you have a great product, to actually get distribution. And the final one of the four types of people in a creative community is what I call a modern muse. And so what do you find with these creative people 
is that they often surround themselves with people who like inspire and motivate them. So they're not necessarily like a teacher or a mentor, but for example, I interviewed, um, you know, a couple really popular YouTube vloggers. So I interviewed, um, Casey Neistat and Connor Franta, who probably combined have like 20 or 25 million subscribers, like a lot. And what was interesting was that, um, all of them would surround themselves, their friends, their friend group with other creators, other YouTube creators, other people, and it would keep them motivated, keep them pushing, it'd give them that energy. And it also gave them that friendly competition. It gave them that push of saying, okay, well, like he or she did that. So like, I want to do that too. And they inspired each other and they did that. So those four elements were incredibly important to have. And even missing one of those can be fatal um, to creative success. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Thank you. Well, I also want to dig in a little bit. You talk a bit about neuroscience and what it has to say about inspiration and aha moments. What are some tidbits there? Yeah. So one of the most amazing things is that, you know, aha moments, these flashes of genius we have that we think of as so magical are actually like really well studied, Pete. Like people know, we know a lot about um, why they happen and all that stuff. And so, you know, the thing is that as people, like we can't explain it. So oftentimes for things we can't explain ourselves, we ascribe sort of like magic, like it's unexplainable and it's not unexplainable. It's actually pretty simple. So we have two different types of processing um, that go on in our brain. One is logical processing. The other is sudden insight. Logical processing happens in our left hemisphere and it's very step-by-step. It's like when you solve a math problem or like work out a word puzzle, like letter by letter, and it's all conscious. You're, you're aware as the steps are going through. You know it's happening. The other type of processing is sudden insight. And this happens in your right hemisphere. And this type of processing is all subconscious. And this is more connecting distant ideas together. And only once the answer comes together and there's sort of like the left hemisphere is quiet enough, only then do you actually consciously experience these things. And so that's why we have this idea of sudden insight because these ideas suddenly pop out of consciousness, but it doesn't mean they're magical. They're just, they're in your right hemisphere. And in fact, this is why you have these so much when you're in the shower or a lot of these stories or you know, people are in bed or they were on a train or on their commute is because in these moments, your left hemisphere is sort of quieted down. You can kind of think about your left hemisphere and your right hemisphere as like, your left hemisphere is your like noisy lab partner who like won't shut up about working through the problem. And your right hemisphere is your like quiet, smart lab partner who's like, you know, working through and they say like, hey, I got the answer. I got the answer. But you can't actually hear them say it until your noisy lab partner kind of shuts up. And so um, the thing is, is that since it's really just a different type of processing, we actually have pretty good insight into how to have more of them. And the sort of it's, it, it's more complicated than this and I explain in the book. But the, the short version is that if you want to have more sudden insight, you need to do two things. One, obviously, you need to have the time, the sort of quiet time for your left hemisphere to sort of you know, be settled. The second thing, and the thing most people miss, and this is why consumption is one of the laws, is you need to consume a large amount of information. You have to have the raw ingredients in your right hemisphere to actually connect. And so you know, I experienced this in the book where you know, I'm reading thousands and thousands of pages of peer-reviewed research on creativity – and so when I have aha moments in the shower or whatever, like I'm having aha moments about these really dorky creativity concepts. If I hadn't been reading all that, like I wouldn't have had those moments. And so people are like, well, you know, JK Rowling had these ideas for Harry Potter, but she also spent her entire childhood reading because she had this like chaotic household and she wanted to get away from it. So like, yeah, that was like, those are the raw ingredients in her brain. Those are the things that were percolating around. Mm-hmm. 
And I like that notion in terms of the quiet. And I'm finding we had a great podcast conversation with Dr. Michael Bruce talking about optimal timing and our ultradian rhythms and neurotransmitters and goodies kind of internally biochemically, you're kind of predisposed to functioning in one or the other place better. So for me, and I see it all the time, I actively sort of schedule my workday around it. Sudden insights, creative goodies happen in the earlier part of the morning. And then logical processing happens when I am kind of more fully woken up breakfast and cruising. So I kind of deliberately try to schedule, oh, I'm going to write something before the early morning. And then I'm going to categorize all these tax transactions <laughs> in the later part of the day. But my brain is happier at having the task match up what is required from it in the state that it happens to be in. Totally. Well, this is so cool. So good. Alan, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Um, no, that was great. I mean, I think, I think the, the one thing that I, I worry about is that, you know, the book is saying that there is science and a path towards creative success. Pete, I'm not saying it's easy. And I think that's a really important thing is that, in fact, I think it's incredibly hard. And I think oftentimes we sort of think because it's like a luck-based thing that, well, I don't have it. So I have an excuse not to try. And I actually want to challenge people. I think you can do it, but you do have to try. You do have to lean in. You do have to really, really push yourself if you want to achieve that. So it's not that I'm saying it's easy. It's actually that's really, really hard, but there is a path. And that, that I think is an important thing to note. Okay, cool. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I love Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I mean, there's like 500 quotes um, in there that I just think are speak to me so much because I think at the end of the day, if you haven't read that book, it's a book by Ben Horowitz, who's one of the early employees of Netscape. And he went on to found Andreessen Horowitz. And he talks about sort of the, um, he talks about, you know, what it's like to be an entrepreneur in a way that I think is very authentic and real. And uh, the sort of, the, the big point he makes is that the stuff isn't easy and it's not simple and it's not straightforward and there aren't silver bullets. And I just think that that message really resonates with me. Oh, beautiful. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Oh, I think anyone who gets into creativity would tell you that Robert Zionk um, did the mere exposure effect study a long, long time ago. And it has such a big influence in marketing and neuroscience and creativity research. And basically the finding was that people's exposure actually has a pretty big relationship on whether or not they like something. And from there, we've sort of gone down the rabbit hole. And there's been all this fascinating research around preference and likability. And that, that study started the whole thing. And basically, it's kind of cute. He showed people um, these fake Chinese characters that didn't mean anything. And they showed it to people different numbers of times. And it would ask them, A, how positive or negative they thought it was and how much they liked it. And it's really funny because people are like, um, people actually like have like opinions on it. They're like, oh, that's a, that's a positive meaning word. And it turns out that how often people see it does affect it. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job? Oh my God. I mean, I love Boomerang. Um, I'm one of those people who you know, tends to write emails at like 1am in the morning. And I don't want to be that obnoxious person that or obnoxious boss who's like sending emails at 1am. And so scheduling stuff for 9am is like, I think, uh, keeps me sane and makes people think I'm sane, which is good. We want people to think that. But you just outed yourself. We all know that you're not sane. Yeah, I know. And everyone's like, why are these emails come right at 9am? <laughs> <laughs> and how about a favorite habit? 
Um, you know, for me, every Saturday I take an incredibly long walk with the dog. And it's one of those times where it's just like, I just think, and I have, I have that moment. I have that breath. I have that pause sort of in life. And it gives me a chance to like check in with my body. Like I can sort of feel something wrong. Am I anxious? Am I tense? Um, and usually we may stop and get a donut along the way. So it's, it's a, it's a delicious habit. Mm -hmm. And how about a key nugget that you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks when you say it? I think the biggest thing I've realized just, you know, in running a business is that everyone you work with is so human. I mean, you know, the people on my board, the people we sell to, the people, you know, who work here, like everyone's so human with flaws and contradictions and messy feelings. And I think as you come to realize that, it really opens up your mind to um, how to interact with the world and how to interact with other companies and customers and prospects and all these different people, because you realize that like, you need to treat people with the sort of respect and dignity that you treat any new friend or any new human you meet. And that, and that for me has been a really um, powerful experience personally and something that I think has benefited other people. Mm -hmm. I'd be intrigued to dig into that a bit in terms of have you shifted your behavior in terms of how you're interacting with folks based upon this kind of core premise? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I tend to treat people with respect, but as peers. And I think it, it tends to be the biggest impact, especially for someone who's younger, is not overly formalizing things. I think you realize as you sort of grow in your career that um, if you make everything overly formal, um, you know, people don't really want to work with you or interact with you. And I think that's a very common mistake that people make early in their careers. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Um, so my website is allen.xyz. That's A-L-L-E-N dot X-Y-Z. And you can check out the book at thecreativecurve.com. Comes out June 12th, everywhere books are sold. Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or a call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their job? My call to action for all of you is that um, every single day when you walk in, know that if you are responsive, if you are responsible, if you get done what you say you're going to get done, um, you will you will outpace, outshine you know, 95% of the people you work with. And if you're building a team, you want to build a team of people who are all performing at that level. And that's where the magic happens. That where, that's where you get the lift. That's where you can really step back and see a team grow. Okay, well, usually that's the final word, but I, I must know more. So tell me then, it seems like that seems foundationally, yes, but of course I should do the things that I say I'm going to do. So can you unpack a little bit in terms of common practice versus what you're saying is an exceptional practice that makes an exceptional difference? Yeah. I mean, the thing is that, you know, as people like we're busy, we, you know, we get tired, we generally have a, a tendency towards homeostasis. And so we don't actually always want to put in that extra incremental 10% effort. And I know for me, it's like sometimes I'm tired. I don't want to respond to that email. I don't want to do these things. And those little actions, those actions that seem so small and inconsequential that you can write them off, that's actually where the magic happens. That's actually where high-performing teams happen because when the basics, when the foundations are taken for granted, when they're assumed that you got that done, that's when you can focus on the big stuff. Beautiful. Well, Alan, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you and, and Track Maven and the Creative Curve tons of luck and success here. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I love how Alan busted the myth of the creative genius working in solo isolation and how it really is so important to have that input from other folks who are mentoring you and challenging you and, and helping to ensure that the ideas that you are coming up with can be refined and molded into the best possible way. So I hope you dug that and more. Again, if you want to check out the transcript and the links to the items we've mentioned, including the Samuel L. Jackson uh, Snakes on a Plane recording, 
promo, which just tickled me so much when I received it. That's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep308. And I hope if you haven't already, you'll push subscribe because that way you'll hear from our next guest. It is a little episode with two guests. We got Anne and Carlo, who are both PwC employees, and we're going to hear a tale of burnout averted, how it was done in one person's cool story, and then how it was rolled out and systematized to make the work environment a place where people could stick around for a longer tenure and reduce the attrition. So hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 